Hey guys, welcome back to The Courier Weekly. I'm Courier's editorial director, Danny Giacopelli. Today on the show, we're with Gabby Lewis. Gabby was once the co-founder of a company that made protein bars out of crickets, of all things. He's since sold that company, but he's still in the protein game, having swapped crickets for cereal. He's co-founder of Magic Spoon, a healthy, direct-to-consumer cereal brand that's grain-free, low-carb, and high in protein. Magic Spoon is basically tailor-built for an Instagram generation, with crazy pastel colors, fun graphics, and marketing. And that's actually what we're going to talk about today on the show. Strategic marketing tactics that he and his team have used that are super cost-efficient and effective. I caught up with Gabby just a bit earlier today to find out what's worked for them. So I spent five years hawking crickets, and that is a crazy idea today. It was an even crazier idea seven years ago when we started. And the motivation for that was that crickets are incredibly sustainable and nutritious as a protein source. And we thought if we could convince people that it was cool or aspirational by partnering with chefs and athletes and celebrities, then we could have a real impact on the food system. We had an amazing time running that business for about five years. I think we helped sort of shift the conversation around sustainable food. It got to a point where we sort of looked ourselves in the mirror and we had to ask, do we want to be cricket farmers the rest of our lives? The answer was probably not. And so that was a business that, while incredibly fun, came with lots of challenges. So we were building the supply chain from scratch. I lived in Thailand for a little while, setting up a supply chain there, which was lots of fun, but very hard. And we were, of course, building not only supply from scratch, but demand from scratch as well, because everyone at the time and most people today thought eating crickets was just weird. So it was a challenging business. We found a company that was really interested in it. And so we sold that business about a year and a half ago. And then I wanted to stay in the food industry, wanted to start something again, wanted to swing the other direction and do something really mainstream. And so I was really just looking at what are big meaty categories in the grocery store that haven't been disrupted is the appropriate word, even though I hate using that word, but haven't been disrupted. When you're looking at big categories in the grocery store, you basically have soda, milk, and cereal as the top three. Obviously, soda has kombucha, seltzer, non-alcoholic cocktails, just endless companies trying to reinvent soda. Likewise, for milk, you've got the Oatly's of the world, you've got cashew, macadamia, all the nut milks, you've now got some lab-grown milk coming out. And then you look at cereal, and you see this enormous category that just hasn't been thought about in forever, basically. Maybe granola was the most recent innovation in cereal, or you know, a big company replacing artificial colors with natural colors, and they call that a win. But really, it's this huge category that just hasn't been upgraded for the modern consumer. And so we saw that as an opportunity and got to work building a cereal brand for the 21st century called Magic Spoon. Were most of the cereal brands then either owned by the big guys and or the small hippies? You know, you'd have like some small hippies running some like super, super, super healthy organic cereal brand. And then you have guys like, you know, whatever, making Cheerios. So it's actually even more skewed towards the big companies than most categories because cereal is very hard to make on a small scale. So it's not like, if you look at protein bars or smoothies, you have all these small like hippie brands where someone's making it in their own home or they're renting a commercial kitchen by the hour. And it's easy to sort of combine ingredients by hand and sell at the farmer's market or a local natural food store. You can't make cereal in your house. You cannot like extrude and puff a grain or a protein into like a puffed crisp without having a piece of machinery that costs six or seven figures. 
And so you don't actually don't have that sort of category of like small niche players. So you've got Kellogg's, General Mills and Post. Between the three of them, they've basically got the whole market. And so you didn't really have any startups doing anything particularly interesting, niche or otherwise. You guys, how you would have disrupted it, obviously you changed quite a lot of the like ingredients. I mean, it's high in protein. You know, you've worked a lot on getting the, the mix right so it's healthy. You're also, you know, an internet cereal brand. So that's just weird, right, for most consumers. I mean, you go to the grocery store, you come home with cereal, you don't subscribe to cereal like you would subscribe to contact lenses or bottles of wine until you guys said, hey, maybe we should, right? Yeah, until you do, right? I mean, you, you don't buy glasses online until you do. And I, I don't view our innovation as being D2C. And we can talk more about that. But I view our innovation and disruption as product-focused. And so we took cereal and rather than cereal being a box of grains and sugar with 20 grams of carbs and one gram of protein, we flipped that on its head and were 12 grams of protein, three grams of net carbs, zero grams of sugar. And so it's really a product innovation. We happen to be selling on the direct-to-consumer channel online. That is new for cereal. Most people don't buy cereal online, but people are used to buying everything online. I don't view that as much of a leap. Well, I mean, at least, you know, you could go to whatever, waitrose.com and order cereal as part of your order. But going to a single product website and just ordering cereal does take a bit of a leap of like, you know, you have to be really interested in it, right? Yeah, totally. And to be honest, if you'd asked me before we launched if we would be 100% D2C a year and a half in, I would have said no. I wouldn't have thought you could build a single product cereal company to the point we've built it just on a branded website. I would have thought we'd have to be on Amazon, we'd have to be in stores. You know, everyone knows there's a ceiling for every business in D2C. And if you're, if you're a mattress company, maybe the ceiling's at 200 million. If you're a eyewear company, maybe it's 400 million, I don't know. I would have guessed the ceiling for a cereal company is pretty low. Turns out it's much higher than we thought it was, which is awesome for us. And so it means we can stay focused on D2C for the time being. You said the uh, the innovation is is product innovation. So what you guys are doing is grain-free, low-carb, high-protein cereal, right? So, I mean, one of the claims to fame is that, you know, it's more protein than an egg, right? Yeah. So the idea was to basically tick every nutritional box anybody could want. So we are, we're high-protein, we're gluten-free, we're grain-free, we're zero sugar, we're soy-free. Then we've got a sort of tongue-in-cheek list on the side of our box of all these like ridiculous health claims that we are. The only thing we're not is vegan, but basically everything else you want us to be, we are. <laughs> yeah, you have a really funny list. It's like keto-friendly, you know, children-friendly. <laughs> it's like 30 things you list. Exactly. One of the innovations, though, that you guys talk about is, you know, Quite a lot of other cereal brands use a variety of different sweeteners. You focus in on this one particular type of sweetener that not a lot of other people use, right? Yeah, so we use allulose as our primary sweetener. It's a relatively new ingredient. It is totally natural. It's actually technically a sugar from a molecular perspective, but it doesn't get processed by your body as a sugar. And so it doesn't spike your blood sugar, doesn't affect your insulin levels, basically zero calorie. But because it is a real sugar, it tastes closer to sugar than most sweeteners that other brands use. And so that's how we've been able to get as close as we have to the taste of junk food cereal without using all those crappy ingredients. So who are you targeting then with this thing? Because the thing that struck me when I first saw you guys launch, it appeals to the stereotypical millennial who loves pastel colors and cool typefaces and like fun illustrations. But also it could just as easily... And, you know, apply to their child as well, because it's like very bright and it's fun branding, right? I mean, who are you targeting or are you trying to target both? Everyone. 
part of the idea here was to create a really mainstream, accessible health food brand. Beyond cereal, what we wanted to say to people is, you don't have to choose between fun and healthy. And so basically every other health food brand that I can think of takes itself too seriously. And if you look at the cereal aisle in particular, it's split between these fun, colorful junk food boxes with characters on them that just spark joy. And then on the other hand, you've got these like white boxes with the farmer on the back talking about his hay that he harvested. And it's very like natural and minimalist and pseudo healthy and boring. And so what we wanted to do is say, you don't need to choose between those two options. You can have Magic Spoon, which is really, really good for you, healthier than all those other cereals that claim to be healthy. And it's also fun and colorful and tasty. And so there's sort of no compromise involved. And with that being the backbone, it makes sense for a kid that wants to eat junk cereal and might even think Magic Spoon is junk, even though it's not. But also an adult that wants to be low carb or high protein or just eat healthily and is fed up of cooking eggs or buying a $9 green juice that's full of sugar, even though it pretends to be healthy or whatever else. Which kind of begs the question, if you're for everybody, you know, who are you targeting then in your marketing? Because kind of what I want to get into today is just how you grow such a a fast growing direct to consumer brand. So what are some like strategic marketing tactics you guys use to bring in the money, as it were? What's been most effective for you? And when we target everybody, but not all at once. So even though we're speaking to all these different types of consumers, you wouldn't know that because you're only going to get one of our messages. So to one person, we're a keto cereal brand. To someone else, we're a high protein. To someone else, we're a diabetic friendly cereal brand. And that's the beauty of being DTC. You can tell these different stories to different people. And as long as they're not like totally contradictory, it all sort of makes sense given the various touch points you have. In terms of channels, like most DTC brands, we're pretty reliant on Facebook and Instagram ads, trying to be less reliant on that because the algorithm can be fickle. But that is the key to growing a DTC brand quickly. It's an important component there. It's become cheaper too recently, right? It was, and at least for us now, it's got a little bit more the past couple of weeks with the elections coming up. It's all cycles. So it was, I mean, five years ago, you could almost have any idea and like run some Facebook ads and clicks are cheap and you can get your first million dollars in sales or whatever it might be. It's much harder now in general. With COVID, it got easier again. Now going into Q4 with the election and with Black Friday is going to get harder again. So it's sort of just supply and demand there. Beyond that, we do a lot of influencer marketing, a lot of podcast advertising, actually. Yeah, let's talk about the podcast stuff. So how, how does that work? Um, you do proper just advertisements. You do like host read, you know, hey, you know, that was so-and-so and Donald Trump. If you're talking about orange things, let's ha- talk about cereal. <laughs> you know, is it like an organic kind of thing like that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, you always want to do host read. It's all about the host for us. So some podcasts, they only do what's called dynamic insertion. So that's like a pre-recorded thing that just like gets inserted into the podcast. That almost always works worse than just having the host organically endorse your product. And then there's a spectrum of the sort of natural integration you just described where they can weave it into the conversation. That's ideal. More often than not, though, it's like a semi-scripted 60-second read at the beginning or the end of the podcast We do that on podcasts of all sizes. So it's sort of a portfolio strategy where we'll sponsor some really big ones for awareness. And that's people like Joe Rogan, Pod Save America, Tim Ferriss. Our focus is still return on ad spend. So it's not like a pure brand or awareness play. But the efficiency there is a little worse generally than the smaller ones. 
some of the podcasts that we're sponsoring are just like really, really small. They don't have any other sponsors, perhaps, or just a couple, maybe with their first sponsor. And those are a lot more efficient in terms of return on ad spend. But you're obviously going to do a lot of them to get the same reach as Joe Rogan. And so that takes more time. And that must be incredibly expensive, the Joe Rogan one. And, you know, Pod Save America, you guys have done too. They're not cheap. <laughs> I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend them as the, the first podcast anybody sponsors, even though actually for us, Joe Rogan was the first podcast we ever sponsored. And we did that because a few brands I'm friends with, it told me that the return on ad spend was amazing for them. And so we took the gamble. But after we did that, everybody I spoke to was just like, why did you take such a big risk on that one? But it, but it worked. And that's the beauty of these things, right? You can just figure out whether they work for other brands. And so, I mean, there's tools online where you can literally see what brands have repeat purchased their media buys on these podcasts. So you can see on any one of these podcasts, has every brand just like done it once and never again? In which case, probably a little bit overpriced, probably not a good return on head spend. Or are brands doing it once as a test and then renewing every month for a year? And in that case, yeah, like it probably worked for them. That's interesting. I, I know podcast listenership, I probably shouldn't say this as a podcast host, but I mean, it's it's gone down <laughs> during the pandemic because people aren't commuting, right, in their cars, which is generally when people listen to podcasts. Yeah, I think the last stats I heard was like, on average, it's down 20%. But prices reflect that. It sucks for the podcasts, I guess, because they, you know, they've got lower listeners and they have to lower their prices. But most advertisers are paying per download, per listen or whatever. And so the pricing remains constant from an advertiser's perspective. And what about um, influencer marketing? I know you guys have dabbled in, in that a bit, sending free product to influencers, not necessarily, you know, paying them, which is, you know, there's different ways to go with influencer marketing, right? It's just like, here's some free stuff. Hopefully you might snap it in, in your Instagrams or stories. And, you know, then if you pay people who have a bigger reach, I guess. Yeah, we, we do all of it. So we have some sizable influencers who are investors in our business. And so mostly health and wellness influencers, the first million dollars in financing we raised, half of it was from influencers. And so we brought on board various people with 100,000 to maybe 500,000 followers who are sort of in the health and wellness world. And they invested various amounts in our business. So they're really, really incentivized to talk about our product. And then we also give them revenue share on what they promote as well. So there's sort of this double incentive where if they post about us and sell $50,000 worth of cereal, they'll get a nice chunk of that but they also want a piece of the company so they're going to see it again in the future if we sell the business. So we did that from the beginning. We continue to do that. And then we also seed a lot of small influencers. So we'll send out product to dozens of influencers every week. We don't ask for anything in return. We sort of expect there will be a quick Instagram story. That's usually how it happens. And then usually they'll ask us for money to do a second one or to do a feed post or something. Just like the, oh, uh, look what just arrived in the mail. I had no idea this was arriving. Let me snap it. Well, well, it's funny because some influencers try and make it casual and organic because they, you know, they know it'll perform better that way. And they know that if it performs and then they ask for money, maybe we'll do a paid promotion with them. Others, if they're smaller, actually sometimes want it to seem like a paid post. And so there's some instances where we'll actually send someone free product and they'll sort of like act as if we paid them a lot of money to post because they're trying to build their profile as an influencer. And so that's always quite funny because we actually don't want people to think that we're paying influencers with 10,000 followers to post about us. A, because we're not. B, because it seems less organic than it is because it's not what's happening. And C, just because when that happens, like 
50 other influencers email us and they're like, oh, you didn't pay me. Like, why are you paying this person? So that, that's like an interesting phenomenon as well. <laughs> it's like DM him and find out the real story. Yeah. You guys have seen increased sales during lockdown, I understand. I mean, like a lot of brands who, you know, do things that, you know, involve cooking or doing stuff in the, the interiors of your home, just household things, you know, sales have gone up. Has that just been an organic thing? Or like when you saw lockdown was happening, did you like double down on like ad spend or something like that? Somewhere in between, there's been an organic lift in the sense that just general purchase intent is higher across the board. So we can see that reflected in our conversion rate on our website. We're at, you know, X percent of people who came to our site pre-COVID would click the buy button. Now it's like X times 1.5. There's a few reasons for that. Like A, people are just stocking up or have been, I guess, in the early days. B, I think there's a whole group of people who weren't shopping online who now are shopping online. And so whereas previously maybe they were just like browsing, learning a bit about Magic Spoon, not sure, now they're just pulling the trigger. And then the fact that people are just at home obviously helps as well for us. And so previously, maybe people were just grabbing a coffee on the way to work. Maybe their office provided breakfast. Now they're at home with their kids probably. And so not only has new customer acquisition gone up, but our existing customers their propensity to return has also gone up and their consumption's gone up. So we've seen, yeah, definitely increase in demand across the board. And it's not lost on us how ridiculously lucky we are. We, you know, didn't choose this business <laughs> expecting anything like that. And most people and most businesses have been completely unlucky through no fault of their own as well. So we're, we're grateful that we're in a good position right now. Yeah, I mean, it's the luck of the draw, really. Well, I mean, for, obviously, you have to be a good, sustainable business to, you know, to survive it. But, you know, we had on the Courier Daily podcast months ago, the founder of the puzzle brand Jiggy, and she had, you know, sales went through absolutely through the roof when lockdown hit. And, you know, she would have never expected that in a million years, right? I mean, it just kind of sometimes these things happen. What about adding new products to the product line? So, you know, your brand name is sufficiently vague enough where you could add anything or involving a spoon and food and putting it into your mouth. So do you want to stay a single product company for a long time or do you want to add some new things? Single product for a while. Cereal is big enough that we, we don't need to build a platform here. The cereal market's enormous. Everybody loves cereal. There's endless flavors of cereal. And so for us, one could build a billion dollar business or more never doing anything apart from just cereal. And so I don't want to distract our team with a bunch of other products none of which have large, as large markets as cereal, none of which are really as fun or exciting. Like cereal is, it's really as fun of a food product as you can imagine. The marketing, like as much as we fault the big cereal brands for pouring sugar down the throats of children for generations, they're amazing marketers. The packaging's fun, like old school cereal ads are so fun. There's so much to play with there. And it's just like a really enjoyable product to focus on. Do you have any toys in the boxes yet? We don't. We, we've gone back and forth about that. We've done like a couple of little fun things. Last year, we did a bath bomb that turned your bath milky and made it smell like cereal. It was like a little too big to put in the box. We just did it as like a one day promotion. We gave it for free when you just bought our cereal. So we're, we're playing around with like various ideas like that that are fun. Where have you guys messed up since you've launched? Where have you really like, when's the shit hit the fan and you realized you know, made a misstep. Thankfully, we made most of our mistakes our last business, I think. So this time around, it's, there are fewer mistakes. There are, of course, still mistakes. I think predicting demand is always impossible for any company in any industry. That's been a challenge. We've gone out of stock at, at various times, never for too long, thankfully. But we're getting better at that. So hopefully that won't happen too much more. Supply chain management yeah, and especially during during COVID, it's it's really hard. You know, 
at the warehouse level, workers get sick. They don't want to come in if they think someone else might be sick. UPS and DHL and USPS, like every shipping carrier is having major delays right now. So that's challenging to navigate. But those problems, you know, pale in comparison to what many companies are experiencing right now. So again, grateful for that. When you guys sold your former company, obviously you were doing a bit of market research to see which sectors you wanted to get into next. Were there any that were on the short list that you didn't go down? You know, are there any other opportunities, some other kind of snack bar or candy or I don't know that you're like, actually, it could use a good deal of disruption, but you know, it's not quite right for us right now. Honestly, there's not a lot. Like, there's not that many big categories that don't have people playing in them. And when we literally walked the aisles of the grocery store, looking for what just seemed like it needed updated, there was very little. And whether it's ice cream or milk or soup or spices or really anything, like you go into any store now and there's a handful of small disruptive companies trying to reinvent whatever that product is. Maybe some of those categories, the startups are failing, not doing a good job. And so you can go in and try and do it better. But to us, cereal like really, really stood out as one big category where there was literally just nobody trying to do it. And I mean, there's a couple of good reasons for that. So you cannot make cereal at a small scale. So that's a big barrier to entry. The big players like really control the shelf space. So that makes it hard to get into retailers typically. And cereal by design is incredibly cheap. It's literally a box of the two most subsidized and nutritionally empty ingredients that exist. And so when people hear the idea of cereal, they expect to pay $2 a box. You cannot make something healthy and charge $2 a box. And so that that's like a constant challenge for us, is explaining to people why we don't cost the same as other cereal. And the answer is like, we're, we're just not cereal. Our product is protein powder and natural flavorings and expensive natural sweeteners that we figured out how to make in the shape of cereal. But we're not selling GMO corn and cane sugar in a box. We're selling ingredients that cost 10 times that price. And that's it for this week. Bit of a public service announcement that this is the final week to apply to Courier's Fresh Fund, a grant scheme for black business founders under the age of 25 to start or supercharge a company. So if you meet the criteria, make sure to check out the details and apply at couriermedia.co. I'm Daniel Giacopelli. The Courier Weekly is back again next week. We'll see you then.